Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Um, I'm going to continue the series that we have been doing over the last few weeks. I've been doing a series of messages in which we've been exploring some concepts that relate to the end of the age. Things that we've probably all heard about, perhaps have even read about, but really have not examined in any detail. So we spent a couple of weeks doing uh, Daniel's 70 weeks. We looked at the nation of Israel over another couple of weeks. And last week I uh, had a good look at the book of Revelation. Uh, In our study last week, it was very much an an overview. I I spoke about the fact that if you meaningfully wish to study the book of Revelation, then you must come to terms with the genre of literature. You must come to terms with what kind of literature it actually is. It's an incredibly important question because it's genre that determines interpretation. Some people read the book of Revelation as if it's history written in advance and suggest that we do exactly the same. They suggest that we interpret the book of Revelation and its images as literally as is possible to do so and resort only to symbolic understanding when the context demands it. Last week I suggested to you that the genre of Revelation demands that we in fact take the exact opposite approach, that we interpret it symbolically, metaphorically, and really only resort to a literal understanding when the context demands it. I think that reading the book of Revelation is much more like reading poetry than it is reading history. I suggested that Revelation's genre is something of a hybrid. It's part pastoral epistle, part prophetic literature, and largely apocalyptic in its style. Apocalyptic literature seeks to accomplish its purpose by using vivid, sometimes grotesque imagery and evocative and powerful emotional language. Now, I don't want to take time to go back over all that we said last week, but if you are reading the book, then you have to keep in mind that its language is much more surrealistic art than it is photographic art. Read it like poetry. I think if you get that wrong, then you're probably liable to go astray in your attempt to seek to interpret the book. Remember the quote from last week, Richard B. Hayes, when he said, Revelation's visions are to be read as poetic symbolism rather than literal descriptions of predictions. Literalistic interpretations, he said, can lead to disastrous misinterpretations. I think we are liable, if we read it literally, to end up like Jesus' disciples, arguing over who had left the bread behind when Jesus talked about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Interpreting his language literally, they completely missed his point. Now, with that in mind, I want to go back into the book of Revelation and look at something that it speaks about. I suspect that most of us have heard about it, but many of us probably have pushed it to the back of our minds and probably would rather not think too deeply about it. So today, what I want to look at is, what is all that about the Battle of Armageddon? Now, even as a non-Christian, I'd heard about Armageddon. When I was a child, my mother would occasionally venture into my bedroom and suggest that it looked like the aftermath of the Battle of Armageddon. 
I, I really didn't know too much about what Armageddon was at that time, but given that comment, I knew that it must have been really bad. Perhaps more recently, we associate Armageddon with the pop culture expo that's annually held in New Zealand cities. However, what is biblically Armageddon? Now, it's interesting, but the word Armageddon is only found once in the Bible. It's found in the book of Revelation, chapter 16, and I'm going to read with you as we begin this message, verses 12 through 16. It says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. It's the one place that the word is found. Now, most uh, futuristic literature that I read in the early days of my Christian experience suggested that the Battle of Armageddon was a physical battle, the last great physical battle of world history. The Antichrist and his forces would be gathered against Israel and against Jerusalem. Some books went as far as to say that these forces would be led by a Russian confederation that was supposedly Gog and Magog of Ezekiel 38 and this passage in, in Revelation, and that they would sweep down from the north only to be destroyed by the second coming of Jesus. As I say, it was a very literalistic approach to interpreting Revelation, and as Richard Hayes suggested, I think it ends up a distorted misrepresentation. By the way, just as an aside, if some of you are thinking, you know what, this stuff about the end of the age really doesn't interest me, then can I uh, suggest that you take comfort in the fact that really I only deal with subjects like this about once every 10 years. So nearly finished, and then you'll have a 10-year break. Let's dive into the subject for a moment. In verse 16, John notes that they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, John is actually writing in Greek, but he notes that Armageddon is a Hebrew term. If you've studied anything of John's writings, you'll know that this is a classic John ploy. In his writings, he often uses a Hebrew term and then follows it up with an explanation for his Greek readers. So if we go to John's Gospel, for instance, in John chapter 5, verse 2, it says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. Then further on in John chapter 19 and verse 13, When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. In John 19 verse 17, John does the same thing. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. In chapter 20, verse 16, Mary turned and said to him, a Hebrew term, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. And in Revelation chapter 9, verse 11, And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek has, he has the name Apollyon. 
So John often uses this ploy of using a Hebrew term and then explaining it to his Greek readers. In Revelation, he does the same with this word Armageddon. He explains that it's a Hebrew term, but then unlike other times, he doesn't seem to explain it for his Greek readers, although the idea of gathering seems to be significant, as we will see shortly, because he says they gathered the kings together in the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. In trying to understand the term, many scholars have come to the conclusion that what, it, what he's referring to is a geographical location in Israel, a place called Megiddo. The Hebrew phrase sounds a little bit like the, the word Megiddo, and the letters can be construed to make it fit. Megiddo is a massive plain in Israel, a couple of days' walk north of Jerusalem. It it was the site in the Old Testament of some significant battles. You can read about that in Judges chapter 5 and verse 19. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 35 verse 22, the good king Josiah was killed tragically in a battle that took place on the plains of Megiddo. Now, as I say, when you interpret Megiddo as the physical geographical location, it is a very literal way of approaching the word Armageddon. And I, again, I, I, I know I'm being somewhat redundant, but remember, when you're looking at Revelation, it isn't normally uh, to be interpreted literally. Remember Nelson Crable's words from last week, think symbol, think metaphor, think poetry. Don't get trapped in wooden literalism unless you really expect to get to heaven and find that Jesus is a sheep. So with that in mind, let's see if we can unpack a little this idea and get a clue to perhaps what John does have in mind. Now the first part of the word Armageddon, the Hebrew word is ha, and that's the word for mountain. So the first part of the term is not generally disputed by scholars. It's a mountain of some kind, of something, of somewhere. But the question is, of what? It's the second part of the phrase that causes the difficulty and the debate. While some have settled on Megiddo as the second part of the phrase, others dispute this. One scholar bluntly comments, an identification of Armageddon with Megiddo is biblically unsustainable. Now, question, why, why would he say that? If we are being literal in our interpretive approach, then we would expect it to be a mountain of some sort uh, in a geographical location, the mountains or mountain of Megiddo. The problem with that, however, is Megiddo is a vast plain and there isn't any mountain on or even relatively near to it. In fact, in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 11, it speaks of the plain of Megiddo. Now, some might argue and say there is a slight bump on the plain, but that slight bump turns out to be an archaeological tell, an artificially created mound that is a result of successive layers of human occupation on the site, and it by no stretch of the imagination constitutes even a hill, let alone a mountain. No Mount of Megiddo has ever been referenced, either in the Old Testament or in any ancient Jewish literature. So the gathering of armies to a place that geographically doesn't exist should at the very least make us suspicious with regard adopting a literal geographical interpretation of the passage. Ha-Megiddo or Ha-Megiddon isn't likely to be a geographical location. 
N.T. Wright, in his book, Revelation for Everyone, says, It would in any case be most unusual for John to suddenly use a place name literally, and we should not suppose that he has done so here. G.K. Beale, in his commentary, says, Like other place names in Revelation, Babylon, Jerusalem, the Euphrates, so Armageddon doesn't refer to a specific geographic locale. It is a typical logical symbol of the last battle against the saints and Christ and will occur throughout the earth. It has, he says, global application. And then Daryl Johnson in his brilliant book on Revelation called Discipleship on the Edge says, There is no place in the whole Middle East by the name Armageddon, which suggests that this name, like so many other names and numbers in Revelation, is a symbol. <coughs> Excuse me. Being a metaphor metaphorical symbol doesn't make the idea any less real. G John is actually dealing with very real concepts here. If Armageddon is to be understood symbolically, then we ask, what is it a symbol of? Ha, as I said, is the Hebrew name for mountain. What is the second part of that phrase? What, what is the symbol behind John's word here? That's the key question. Now, in Hebrew, it is literally ha, and then there's the letter M, a space, an apostrophe reversed, another space, and, and the letter D. And the key issue is what are the consonants, as it were, that we would put into that phrase? Now, without going into all of the details, there's a significant number of scholars who believe that it should be read Ha-Moed. Ha-H-A-R, mountain, Moed, M-O apostrophe E-D. In the Hebrew, moed means gathering or assembly or congregation. So that would make the word ha-mogedon in Hebrew mean the mount of gathering, the mount of congregation, or the mount of assembly. Now remember, Revelation 16, verse 16, spoke about a gathering of people. It's always a good method of biblical interpretation to let the Bible interpret the Bible. So a good question to ask is, is there any place in the Hebrew scriptures where it talks about a mountain of gathering, a ha-moed? And the answer is yes, and stunningly, uh, there turns out to be a place where it is incredibly instructive. And that place is Isaiah chapter 14. When you go to Isaiah chapter 14, you notice that in verse 4, Isaiah takes up a taunt against the king of Babylon, an earthly ruler. The scripture says, take up this proverb or taunt against the king of Babylon and, and say. So Isaiah begins speaking to this earthly ruler. And as he does, there is a transition of thought from dealing with an earthly ruler to dealing with a clearly supernatural ruler. It is immediately apparent that a being above and beyond the sphere of human life comes into view. So in verse 12 and through 15, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, the Hamoed. I will sit in that place. On the furthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And God answers, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. 
So Isaiah describes an angelic challenge to the God of the congregation, to the God of Ha-Moed. It involves a seditious grasping for the throne of the creator himself, the very throne whose glory he, this angelic creature, as the anointed cherub was supposed to guard. That phrase, by the way, the anointed cherub, comes from a parallel passage found in the book of Ezekiel. It's a passage that really speaks to and stands with the passage in Isaiah. It, like Isaiah, is a taunt against an earthly ruler. In, the, in, uh, in Ezekiel's case, it is the prince of Tyre. And so Ezekiel 28 and verse 2 starts off, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, just as Isaiah transitioned in his thought from an earthly ruler to a supernatural being, Ezekiel does exactly the same. And in verse 11, he moves from the prince of Tyre to the king of Tyre. And he's clearly now speaking about a non-human ruler. And he says this, verse, I'm reading from verse 12. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx and jasper, sapphire and turquoise and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub. So both Ezekiel and Isaiah speak of a supernatural figure who rebels against the creator God. And both of them speak of this rebellion as centering around the issue of control of the Hamoed, of the congregation uh, or the mountain of, of gathering or assembly or, or congregation. Now, let me put a comma there just for a moment and take leave of this rebellious creature. We'll come back to him in a moment, but let's just take a moment and examine some insights that the Old Testament gives us regarding this Hamoet, this mountain of gathering. It seems from the scriptures that God clearly does not sit in splendid isolation in his dwelling place in heaven. He rules over a myriad of angels, and there are portions in Scripture where it talks about his, his divine counsel of sorts. For example, in Psalm 82 verse 1, it says, God has taken his place in the divine counsel. In the midst of the Elohim, he uh, holds judgment. So the Elohim there, although it can be a word that describes God, it can also be a word that describes God's small g. By that we mean angelic creatures. And here God is spoken of as holding a divine counsel. There are places in the Old Testament where the curtain is kind of folded back and we get a very slight insight into the functioning of this divine counsel. So in Job chapter 1 and verse 6 and Job chapter 2 verse 1, it says there's a day when the, son of God, the sons of God come and present themselves before the Lord and Satan comes among them. 
Then there's a mysterious passage in 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 19 through 22, where it says this, Micah said, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one spoke in this manner, this is angels, one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail, go out and do so. Now, I'm not even going to try and explain that portion of Scripture. Suffice it to say, however, that it does provide us with something of an insight into the existence of and the function of this divine counsel. Of course, there are also places in the book of Revelation, especially chapter, chapters 4 and 5, where we get an insight into the throne room and the beings that are found on this Hamoed, the, the, the mountain of gathering and assembly, this mountain of council. This place of rule of this council of assembly then is called the mountain of God, the Hamoed. Theologian Meredith Klein says of Hamoed, Hamoed is the place of God's royal presence where he engages in the judicial surveillance of the world, lookout mountain, where he gathers his counsel for deliberation, council mountain, where he musters his armies for battle, martial mountain, where he assembles the company of his holy ones, the spirits of just men made perfect and with myriads of angels, ecclesia mountain. That the scriptures would depict God's dwelling place as a mountain actually isn't a surprising thing. In the ancient Near East, the abode of the gods were often depicted as mountains. It's easy to understand why. A mountain because no human beings lived there. Ancient people didn't climb mountains recreationally. They were remote and forbidding places. They reached up into the heavens where, of course, from their understanding, obviously the gods dwelt. So the scriptures depict God's residence, the place of his abode, as a mountain, and it does so in numerous passages. So, for example, in Psalm 48, verses 1 and 2, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful for elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 essentially both ask the same question. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill or your holy mountain? Who may ascend the hill or the mountain of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, it says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that in the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Again, in Isaiah 24, verse 22, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the hosts of exalted ones, and on the earth the kings of the earth. They will be gathered. There's that concept again. They will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit, and will be shut up in the prison. After many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be disgraced, and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion, and in Jerusalem before his elders gloriously. 
It's not just in the Old Testament. When you come to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24, it says, You haven't come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And then finally, Revelation chapter 21, verse 9 and 10. John says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the great city, holy Jerusalem. Now that's a lot of scriptures, but it shows us that God's dwelling place is symbolized by a mountain. It is a place of assembly. It is a place of gathering. It's Hamoed. In the light of this, when we look at the book of Revelation and speak about the battle of Armageddon, the battle of Hamoed, I think we need to see it in terms other than simply a physical battle between physical armies in the geographical location of Megiddo. The battle that surrounds Hamoed is primarily a spiritual battle for the control of heaven and earth and all its inhabitants. Satan says, I will rise up and I will sit on the congregation of Moed. The, the stars will be mine. I will be above the clouds, the glory of God. This will all be mine. Yahweh's rule was being challenged, and it is currently still being challenged by Satan and his hordes. The devil has set up an antagonistic rule and dominion. If you like, he has set up his own so-called Hamoed. Just as Mount Zion and Jerusalem was the earthly symbol of God's rule, it seemed that Satan had a locale that was regarded as the earthly symbol of his rule and of his counterfeit government. And it was regarded as being in the north of Israel. In fact, Mount Hermon, the range Mount Hermon, and particularly Mount Bashan, this region was called by the ancients the place of the serpent or the gates of hell. It was symbolically this counterfeit Hamoed. In ancient Jewish literature, the book One Enoch, it says that from this place, Mount Hermon, Mount Bashan, the sons of God by which they meant the fallen angels, chose to launch their rebellion against Yahweh and his rule. The psalmist depicts this animosity between God's mountain and Satan's mountain. In Psalm 68, verse 15, it says, Mount Bashan, majestic mountain, ba Mount Bashan, rugged mountain, why gaze in envy, you rugged mountain, at the mountain where God chooses to reign, where the Lord himself will dwell forever? The message translation says, You huge mountains, Bashan mountains, mighty mountains, dragon mountains, all you mountains not chosen, salt now and feel sorry for yourselves, for this is the mountain God has chosen to live on. He'll rule from this mountain forever. Clearly we aren't dealing with literal insecure mountains who are feel, feeling rejected for not having been chosen. This is a poetic way of describing the battle of Hamoed, the battle of two kingdoms of two mountains. That ancient struggle has raged since the beginning of time. 
Galatians says that in the fullness of time, Jesus enters onto the scene and into the scene of the struggle, where at least up till this point, Satan's rule has been largely uncontested. Even Jesus acknowledged that, calling him in John chapter 12, the prince of this world, and in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul calls him the ruler of this world. Satan immediately realizes his rule of this planet is being challenged and he seeks to derail this invasion as soon as it has begun. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, the message translation reads, For the third test, this is Jesus in the wilderness in a contest with Satan. For the third test, the devil took him to the peak of a huge mountain. He gestured expansively, pointing out, to all the, pointing out all the earth's kingdoms, how glorious they all were. And then he said, they are yours, lock, stock, and barrel. Just go down on your knees and worship me, and they are yours. Now, this reference to the devil taking Jesus up into a very high mountain, I think is much more than simply the devil trying to give Jesus the best vantage point so that he can see the kingdoms of the world. This is Satan claiming to have the true Hamoed. He takes him to his place of gathering and in effect says, I'm in control of the gatherings of the people. This is my domain. They belong to me. They are gathering together unto me. I think most of us would perhaps then be immediately reminded of a prophetic word in Genesis chapter 49 where it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Some of you will remember an old chorus that we used to sing, Unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Hamoed is a battle about who the people will gather to. In effect, Satan is saying, I'll tell you what, Jesus, if you bow down and worship me, I'll let this battle of gathering be decided. I'll let them gather to you. Of course, Jesus refuses and resists, and Satan is forced to beat a retreat. Jesus then takes the initiative through his public ministry and goes on the front foot and on the offensive, and the kingdom of God breaks into the world in a new and powerful way. Demons are cast out, the sick are healed, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus and his disciples are in the region of Caesarea Philippi. This, if you check your map, is in the very shadow on the slopes of the Mount Hermon range. And of course, it's here that Jesus uh, asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter makes his famous response, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, son of Jonah, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Remember, this place was called by the ancients the gates of hell. Here is Jesus strategically throwing down the gauntlet to Satan and his so-called Hamoed at the gates of hell in his very backyard. Just six days later, Matthew chapter 17 and verse 1, they are still in the same region. And it says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a very high mountain by themselves. Clearly, they are still in the same geographic location. 
the mountain is unnamed, so there are several possible contenders, but according to many scholars, including Lightfoot and Fuller, the most likely mountain recorded here or mentioned here is Mount Hermon. So on the very in the very backyard of Satan and his so-called Hamoed, Jesus is transfigured, and we see a display of glory that puts Satan on notice. And in effect, Jesus is saying, I am about to play the dramatic hand that will be the decisive blow in this battle for Hamoed, for control, for the ownership of, of the assembly. That decisive battle, or blow rather, was unexpectedly the blow from the cross. Satan, who is resisting Jesus to the very last moment, mistakenly pushes him to the cross, no doubt thinking that his death would bring an end to this unwelcome incursion on his domain. But the cross wasn't the end of the battle, it was the end of him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, None of the powers or the rulers of this present world order understood it. For if they had, they would never have crucified the Lord of shining glory. That's the way the Passion Translation has, has that passage. Psalm 22 is a very interesting psalm, and it's fascinating in this regard. It's well known, of course, as a messianic psalm, and it starts with that famous cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it goes on to describe the crucifixion in remarkable uh, detail and accuracy hundreds of years before it was, in effect, a method of crucifixion. The ancient Hebrews used to stone people. It was the Romans who introduced crucifixion. So crucifixion was completely unknown to the psalmist, but he describes it brilliantly and very accurately. And in describing the scene that that is around the cross, he says in verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan. They have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I believe, and many scholars agree, that this is a description of the demonic hordes that literally blackened the sky around Golgotha, around the cross, so that it became dark in the middle of the day. And note where these demonic creatures came from. It says from Bashan. They were the bulls of Bashan. This is Satan's so-called Hamoed, his mount of gathering. Again, the Passion Translation reads this verse, I'm surrounded by many violent foes. Mighty forces of evil are swirling around me who want to break me to bits and destroy me. However, we know that rather than being the place where Yahweh's rule was finally overthrown, it was the devil who suffered the mortal blow. So Paul in, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 in the wonderful J.B. Phillips translation says, And then, having drawn the sting of all the powers ranged against us, he exposed them, shattered, empty, and defeated in his final glorious triumphant act. The battle of Moed was decisively settled. Although given a mortal blow from which he will not recover, Satan nonetheless continues to resist God's rule and he will do so until finally overcome and thrown in the lake of fire at the end of the age. For you and me as believers, we live in the now but not yet. We know that Jesus has won the battle decisively and yet we are still engaged in it and are fighting. So let me try and summarize now what Armageddon might be all about. 
Again, let me quote some scholars. Sam Storm says, Armageddon is prophetic symbolism for the whole world in its collective defeat and judgment by Christ. Robert Mouncey, in his commentary on Revelation, says of Armageddon, geography is not the major concern. Armageddon is, a, is symbolic of the final overthrow of all the forces of evil by the might and power of God. Now, being symbolic doesn't make the struggle any less real. For God's people in every age, the Hamoed, the Hamageddon warfare, is in its core a wrestling against the spirit powers of darkness and a resistance to the challenge that evil brings against God's purposes and God's people. I think this is the struggle that Paul refers to in Ephesians chapter 6, where wonderfully in the message translation it reads, this is no afternoon athletic contest that we'll walk away from and forget about in a couple of hours. This is for keeps, a life or death fight to the finished against the devil and all his angels. Be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help you can get, every weapon God has issued, so that when it's all over but, but, but the shouting, you will still be on your feet. You know, one of the massive problems in viewing Revelation as literalistic, as futuristic, uh, is the great temptation to take what I think John intends to be pastoral advice uh, and, and principles, to simply take them and push them off into another age, way out into the future, where they have really no impact or shaping power in or over us. As I say, remember that Revelation is a pastoral epistle, though written in apocalyptic style. And as such, it speaks to where God's people are in every age and at every time. So often I see people taking the truths of Revelation and pushing them out into the future where they have no relevance. I see that uh, with, with the mark of the beast, for example. There have been endless discussions over the years by many in terms of what constitutes that mark. Everything from credit cards to barcodes and, and more latterly to COVID-19 vaccines. I, I kid you not. All the while, John tells us that the Antichrist is functioning in the present round about us. He says that in his epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Effectively, what he's saying is the beast system is already here, already seeking to mark you, already seeking to shape you in the very here and now. Don't push it off into some future age. It seeks to shape you in the way that you function in your relationships, in how you use your money and your resources. It seeks to shape you in terms of how you use your sexual capacities, how you raise your children, and so on. If Revelation is symbolic, then it's highly unlikely that the mark will actually be something physical, something that you and I will see with our, with our natural eye. In the same way that in Revelation chapter 14, where it talks about the Father's name being written on our foreheads, that's probably not likely to be something that will actually be seen with the naked eye. These things are symbolic realities. Satan's system is seeking to mark you and shape you in the same way that God's love and grace reaches out to put his signature on your forehead. People do exactly the same with the Battle of Armageddon. Since it's something way out into the future, you needn't worry your pretty little head about it. Just forget about it. All the while, a battle is raging around about you. 
Now, what I'd want to say is rejoice for the battle has been decisively won and yet it still must be entered into. We live in the now, but the not yet. This battle has very real consequences and at times very real casualties. It hangs in the balance in a sense, depending on our participation. Now, as I've said numerous times in this short series, you really don't have to agree with my thoughts. Sometimes to be truthful, I'm not sure that I agree with my thoughts. But it does pay to have some thoughts. Having thoughts is a much better proposition than mindlessly accepting what somebody else has written. If my thoughts about the book of Revelation and perhaps specifically the battle of Hamoed or Armageddon don't resonate with you, then what I still hope for is the fact that you will realize we are in the midst of a vicious present day battle. It's a battle for con the control of the cosmos and all its inhabitants. It is a battle whose end has been determined, but it is a battle that still requires us to declare our allegiance and to take our place as soldiers on active duty. If you have uh, if you're listening to this podcast or, or um, you're online and you're watching and you've never declared your allegiance to Jesus Christ, then it might be a really good idea to turn off the screen and make that declaration. If you have declared your allegiance, but you're sitting um, relaxing and not even thinking about the battle that rages about you, it would be really wise for you to recognize that we are in the midst, I believe, of the battle of Hamoed, the battle for the congregation, the battle for who will the people gather to. We have determined we will gathering, our gathering will be unto him, but we battle for others who have yet not decided. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.